What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norden. Today is Friday, October 8th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norden, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going on this fine Friday? Matt, it is a beautiful Friday. It is 75 degrees, and my sister's getting married this weekend. (laughs) Huge news. Huge congratulations to Sam and uh, her soon-to-be husband, Louie. Yes, congrats, guys. I love you guys. We're going to have a blast this weekend. Let's ride. Officially going to be part of the fam, too. That's huge. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. It's a long time coming. Super excited. What about you, Matt? What do you got to plan this weekend? Uh, this weekend, I am relaxing. Probably going to go for a little bike ride. I'm thinking of taking the uh, taking the bike over to New Jersey. Going to go across the George Washington Bridge. So hopefully it's not too windy and I don't hate it. <laughs> Whoa. Why did I not know that you could do that? I feel like that was like something that was like a mental block for me. Like, no, you cannot go over the George Washington Bridge. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've run across it before and it was so windy that on the way back, I just had a miserable time. Uh, that was last <laughs> May and it was just, <laughs> the way there was cool. I was like, wow, what a beautiful view. And then the way back, I was like, I have never felt this much just pressure against my body <laughs> from the wind. <laughs> hey, that's why you keep the Alta on you. Yeah, true. <laughs> All right, let's get into the show. If you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or if you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we kick things off, if you haven't done so already, please go leave a review on Apple Podcasts to uh, help the show get some more visibility. Every rating, every review really helps us out a lot. And even if it's something you've already done, or even if you listen on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever we are, rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts really helps us out the most. So thank you if you have. Thank you if you plan on doing it again. And uh, if not, hopefully we can change your mind with this awesome episode coming up. Yes. Go ahead, guys. Rate, review, do all of the things. Subscribe, unsubscribe, then resubscribe. That helps a lot, too. Um, so, all right, let's get into our first quick hit of the week. So, this first one is some tough news from the New York Times. Katrin Einhorn writes, protected too late. U.S. officials report more than 20 extinctions. Yeah, this past weekend, there was kind of just a, a couple tough news stories, and, you know, we are going to cover them all, so let's started with this one. Um, U.S. federal wildlife officials announced last Wednesday that 22 animals and one plant species should be declared extinct and removed from the endangered species list. We're currently experiencing a loss of biodiversity, which threatens over 1 million species within the next few decades. So unfortunately, I I wish this was like a one-off story where we can be like, hey, you know, there's 23 new species that just got declared extinct, but uh, buckle up. This might start to become a little more common. Bridget Fahey oversees species classification for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and she said 
Each of these 23 species represents a permanent loss to our nation's natural heritage and to global biodiversity. And it's a sobering reminder that extinction is a consequence of human-caused environmental change. Unfortunately, it's looking like the Endangered Species Act was passed a little too late to save some of the species that it initially sought to protect. Um, So 54 species in the United States have been removed from the endangered species list because of recovery, which is good. 48 species have been upgraded from endangered to threatened, so they're not all the way recovered yet, but again, that's a step in the right direction. That's good news. And unfortunately, 11 species have gone extinct. Yeah, and there's a really important quote from the article, too, that says, uh, without conservation, scientists say many more species would have disappeared, but with humans transforming the planet so drastically, they add much more needs to be done. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like The work that they're doing is helping, but the rate of issues getting worse is quicker than the rate of recovery for some species. So that's always going to outpace it until we can fix that. Yeah, definitely. The article also goes on to discuss a bunch of the species that were declared extinct. So definitely go check that out too. Yeah, they also discuss global biodiversity talks that are going to occur next month. And one proposal that's gaining some momentum is called the 30 by 30 plan. And that goal is to protect at least 30% of Earth's land and oceans by 2030. What's also interesting to me is that about half of the species that were in this new extinct group have already been declared extinct by the International Union for Conservation of Nature or the IUCN, who you've maybe heard us reference on the show a couple times. Um, Anyway, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is working through a backlog and they tend to prioritize animals that might need to be added to the endangered species list over animals that might be extinct, which I think is a good thing. Um, But that's kind of why so many of these species just got declared extinct here, despite the IUCN declaring them extinct a while ago. I'm assuming that's because like, hey, if they're like on their way out, then at least we have the chance to maybe do something about it and, and save them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, if they can do it ahead of time and say these animals we thought they were good. They might not be. It's a lot easier to fix that than it is to find the last two remaining butterfly species, for example. And then repopulate the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it's kind of a, let's count our losses and do something where we still have a really good chance to make a difference as opposed to just buttoning up some science. That's probably already the case. Right, right. There's also a book called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert that talks about this entire situation. It's sometimes called the Holocene Extinction or Anthropocene Extinction, and it's an ongoing extinction event as a result of human activity. Um, We talked about this word prefix when talking about climate change a while ago, but anthro means human caused, so you have anthropomorphic climate change, and here we have Anthropocene, the age of humans, and that's all this extinction age. They say it's attributed to humans because of climate change, deforestation, habitat loss, all those different factors that add up. And I haven't read this book, but I did read another one of her books called Field Notes from a Catastrophe, which was about her own observations of political processes and just what's going on with climate change. It's a really good book. She's a really good writer. So I haven't read the sixth extinction, but we're going to go ahead and endorse it here. If you want to check it out. Yes, definitely <laughs> read it and report back to us. That way, uh, <laughs> we, that we, way don't, have we to. don't have to do the research. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be great. All right. So one week after we talked about big cats being back, uh, we had to find a story for our dog people out there. 
So luckily, the World Wildlife Fund's Ellen DeWolf, how about that, reported the return of the wolf in Europe. Yeah, pretty ironic that Ellen DeWolf reported about the wolf population. Um, I don't know where she's from. It very well could be pronounced DeWolf, but just for the sake of irony, we're going to go with DeWolf reporting about (laughs) the wolf. Um, Yes, this is some good news. Wolves, bears, lynx, and wolverines are seeing their numbers rise across Europe. This might already sound like a big deal, but the article highlights that many of these populations were systematically almost driven to extinction in the 19th and 20th centuries to protect livestock, and there are now roughly 12,000 wolves across Europe, which also helps keep the populations of the species that wolves hunt at a more stable level. As with anything, it isn't universally loved by all people, especially with Europeans who worry about the idea that more wolves could lead to more human-wolf conflict, which, you know, that's a very reasonable worry to have. Um, And that was actually the initial reason for why wolves were endangered in Europe in the first place. So the article goes on to talk about how different countries are responding to the increased wolf presence in Europe, and it starts with the Netherlands. Uh, 54% of Dutch people think the wolf deserves a place in the Netherlands, and 76% do not see the wolf as a threat to humans. Sheep farmers, however, worry about the well-being of their own animals and the cost of certain protective measures that they would have to take to keep those animals safe. There's subsidies that help offset the cost of protective measures, but they aren't available everywhere, which is kind of the problem. And the subsidies that do exist only cover land that is established wolf territory. So it's hard to get this funding, and the funding itself doesn't account for wolves that roam and leave the territory that's been established as wolves are here. So I could easily see why sheep farmers are worried, but you know, it's it's good that over half the country seems to think that wolves deserve a place there. That's kind of the first step in getting a conservation goal established. In Norway, there's kind of this rural urban divide where the rural communities feel like their concerns are not being heard by urban populations and the urban populations tend to value conservation partially because, you know, it doesn't impact them directly, but they could say that their country is doing the right things from a conservation standpoint. So there it's less of a conflict between human and wildlife and more of a socio-political conflict between the different parts of the country. And the last country that they talk about in Europe is Romania, where the wolf has been protected since the 1990s to offset the damage done during Romania's communist era. And during that time, wolves were declared the enemy of the people. They were hunted. They were poisoned. And now many Romanian shepherds have already started using electric wire fences or the Carpathian sheepdog to protect their sheep from wolves. So there isn't much of a conflict in Romania at all anymore. And they're kind of a great representation of coexisting with the wolves with the right precautions taken. Yeah. And go look up a Carpathian sheepdog because they look beautiful my goodness they're gorgeous the one that they posted in the article was so cool looking i'd never heard of them and i was like that's that's a dog yeah that's a dog right there (laughs) dude yeah and i like i'm like looking into getting a dog soon that might be on the table i don't know where i would get one but but yeah that's so interesting i would never think of wolves being a threat to livestock but it makes total sense yeah i mean they're they're hunters and What's interesting here, and and they kind of hint at this, I don't really know, disclaimer here, I'm just speculating, this could be totally wrong, but I wonder if now that the populations of animals that wolves hunt has increased, are wolves going to be as likely to hunt livestock? Yeah. 
like the, their food is so readily available because their own numbers declined. So then their food increased. Like they might not need to go after livestock and might go after the traditional animals that they usually hunt. Yeah. But then on the other hand, if it's easy enough for them to just pick off a couple sheep, like you're probably going to take the easy animal, right? <laughs> yeah, true. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next one here. So Celine Castronovo reported one in eight acres in California has burned in the last decade, published in The Hill. We've talked about wildfires a lot on TPT this summer and you know how they're getting worse. And an analysis reported from the Bay Area News Group found that 12.7 million acres have burned in California since 2012. And that's compared to 6.4 million acres that burned in the decade before. So to easily quantify it, wildfires are about twice as bad as they were from 2002 to 2011 over the last decade. Fires are becoming more frequent and more dangerous as temperatures rise and brush gets drier. And that means the length and the intensity of fires is increasing, so it's causing more damage. Craig Clements, who's the director of San Jose State's University's Fire Weather Lab, says that the growing intensity of wildfires is from climate change, decades of fire suppression, and drought. And he predicts that megafires, which are fires that are larger than 100,000 acres, will likely continue moving forward. It's a very sobering quote from the article, um, and it's from U.S. Forest Service Chief Randy Moore, who says that fire seasons have now become fire years. He also said that lawmakers should work to help address staffing shortages among federal firefighters to ensure a robust year-round workforce available to respond anytime. Yeah, and Matt, this is something you talked about with Tyler Smith uh, on our August 30th episode. And one thing he mentioned was how firefighters do have an off-season, but it sounds like we're going to need more and more firefighters or the existing ones are just going to need to work for longer periods. Yeah, good call. If you are a new listener or just missed that interview, go check out that one. Uh, Tyler's a wildland firefighter, and he provides some really great insight into wildfires, the processes of wildfire fighting. And yeah, it's, it's funny that you bring up that they might need to work longer periods. I saw something, I think the U.S. Forest Service posted it on Instagram um, maybe a month or so ago. And they were basically just talking about how they are offering firefighters more money to stick around for longer shifts. So Tyler, I'm not going to give away too much of the interview. You should go check it out. But he talks about the period, how they do have an on season and then an off season, I guess because the fire seasons are lasting longer, they're looking to keep those people on for longer periods of time. And it's a really demanding job. So they really earn their time off. So absolutely. Um, shouts out to all the firefighters. Um, I'm thinking about Dan's dad right now specifically, but shouts out to all the firefighters out there. All right, staying in California, this next one is from the LA Times, where Hannah Fry and several others write, massive oil spill sends crude onto Orange County beaches, killing birds and marine life. Yeah, an oil spill on Saturday that uh, started from a pipeline off the coast of Huntington Beach also threatens the wetlands nearby, along with what Nick had already mentioned in this headline. The pipeline failure caused over 126,000 gallons of crude oil to spill into waterways, and that created an 8,320-acre oil slick. For reference, that oil slick is larger than Santa Monica itself. For people who don't know or people who need a refresher, an oil slick is a layer of oil that kind of floats on top of the water and creates this film over top. So 
oil also got into a 25 acre ecological reserve in Huntington Beach known as the Talbert Marsh. And the marsh is home to dozens of bird species. As of Sunday afternoon, officials reported that the pipeline had stopped leaking, but that crews were racing to contain the damage at the time of the declaration. There's some aerial images in the article, and they show the oil washing ashore in just these dark gray waves, and it's extremely ominous to see it. So check it out if for nothing other than that one picture. Ben Smith, a biologist and environmental consultant for the county, said, quote, if the birds get into this tar, it's going to stick to their feathers and it's going to be a problem for them. It contaminated the water. It's bad for the wildlife, bad for the water, bad for the people who use the water. It's really unfortunate. The Pacific Marine Mammal Center right now is on standby, acknowledging that this is going to be a long term recovery effort and that the animals most immediately affected by this are birds. According to a supervisor of the beach, technology for mitigating oil spill damage has improved in recent years, and she said, we can get this cleaned up sooner and better than in prior oil spills, but that doesn't mean it's okay that this happened. Someone has to be held accountable for how this happened. There are 22 other oil and gas platforms in federal waters off the coast of Southern California, two of which are currently being decommissioned. The spill, while tragic, was preventable. Congressman Alan Lowenthal of Long Beach and Orange Counties said an anti-oil quote that I've heard many times before, where you drill, you spill. So my question is, how many more times does this have to happen before our politicians who have big oil in their pocket stop accepting the money, stop subsidizing fossil fuels, and start to get on board with the renewable energy transition that at this point a majority of the country wants to happen. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it just goes back to the the documentary we watched a couple weeks ago with the BP stuff. It's it's all the same stuff and it all continues to happen and it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight unless our boy Guterres at COP26 does something big. Yeah, we believe in you, Antonio Guterres. So you got this show behind you and you got an army of listeners behind you too. Shout out to the TPT fans out there. All right, next up from the American Geophysical Union, the Earth is dimming due to climate change. Yeah, this article talks about how warming ocean waters have caused the Earth to be less bright. Uh, Earth shine, which is the light reflected from Earth that lights up the surface of the moon, shows there's been a drop in how reflective the Earth is over the past 20 years. Earth is reflecting roughly half a watt of light per square meter less than it was in 2000, with most of the drop occurring over the last three years. Earth reflects about 30% of the sunlight that shines on it, and this drop represents a 0.5 decrease in reflectance. The research also shows that the changes do not correspond with changes in the sun's brightness, which means that the changes are caused by something on Earth. From the article, there's a quote that says, there has been a reduction of bright, reflective low-lying clouds over the eastern Pacific Ocean in most recent years, according to satellite measurements made as a part of NASA's Clouds and the Earth's Radiant Energy System project. This is found in the area off the west coast of both North and South America, where increased sea surface temperatures have been recorded due to climate change. The dimming is contributing to more solar energy in the Earth's atmosphere and oceans, which I think could be good for harnessing solar energy. Um, I, I don't know for certain, but like that kind of makes sense to me. Um, 
It's also a bad thing that this is happening because scientists had hoped that a warmer Earth meant more clouds, which would increase reflectance. And they had hoped that this would help moderate global warming. And it turns out the opposite is true. So it's pretty concerning stuff. And I guess we're going to have to see what this all means. Like, I genuinely do not know enough about it to say whether or not it's permanent or if better climate change mitigation can reverse it. So I am going to personally hope that my initial guess about harnessing the extra solar energy is true because after COP26, we're going to see an even bigger push for renewables. So if there's more available sunlight and solar energy to harness, that sounds cool. Uh, Again, I know nothing about this process, so that could be totally impossible. So let's hope I'm right. (laughs) We had a question come in from Caitlin Parise about how leaves aren't going to be as bright when they change their colors. And in many places, leaves are just going to stay green or get brown before dropping. And we won't even see those reds, yellows, and oranges that we all love so much. So basically, I'm saying no fall. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great question. So my initial thoughts are that increased emissions lead to dimmer skies because of the smog, and that means less nutrients for the trees and for their leaves. Leaves are green in the spring and the summer because that's when they make the most chlorophyll. So I did some research on this question, and again, thank you, Kate, for sending it in. Another reason is climate change is leading to more extreme weather events. So if summers are unusually dry or the end of summer gets cold, the leaves don't change their colors as drastically and they just kind of drop off, whether they're green or, or brown and dying off. We're not going to get that foliage that we love. So look, if you're on the fence about this whole climate change mitigation thing, do it for the foliage. Dude, come on, guys. Foliage? <laughs> no foliage? Foliage is a disgusting What's the point? word. Why is foliage such a disgusting word to me? I don't know why. I like think it's so nasty. But no, it is beautiful. But guys. he's still trying to save it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a disgusting word and I still want to save it. Um, all right. So in our last one of the week, um, this one's from Anna Maria Joller Makarowitz of the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, who reported, as fossil fuel prices skyrocket globally, renewables grow steadily cheaper. This one goes out to all the haters who haven't heard this episode yet, but are probably thinking, wow, the first couple stories were not good. Here's a good one for you, haters. Um, Energy prices have been going up across the world, but renewable energy prices have been steadily decreasing over the past decade. On the solar side, utility scale solar photovoltaic prices have dropped 85% since 2010, and concentrating solar power has dropped by 68%. For wind, we've seen onshore wind drop in price by 56% and a 48% decrease for offshore wind. So across the board, all those are getting much cheaper over the last 10 years. On the other hand, the last three months have shown natural gas prices increase by 20% and the price of coal has increased by 13%. Europe has seen the largest increase in prices for natural gas recently, as the summer months have affected electricity demand in southern and southeastern Europe due to the increase in economic activities, tourism, use of air conditioning, and other factors. The article also points out how supply and demand plays a large role in the gas industry, and there's a high demand for gas right now as the global economy continues to rebound from the pandemic recession. The author writes... The fossil fuel sector is becoming more volatile and riskier. Global investors are accelerating their collective move away from the massive climate-related risks associated with fossil fuel assets 
and building capacity. This money is now being shifted to deploy a lot of money into renewable energy infrastructure projects. Yeah, and if I learned anything from my four years of uh, getting my finance degree, it's that wherever the demand goes, the money will follow. So like for the oat milk industry right now, like I remember when they first came out with it, it was like, okay, five, six bucks a gallon. Go ahead, go spend your money on it. But now it's like, I can get a gallon of like Chobani oat milk for like three bucks. So wherever the demand goes, the money will follow. Yeah, so that's why that's why gas prices are so high. And it's funny you bring up oat milk because I don't know if you remember this, but I feel like when it first launched, you couldn't even find a half gallon. It was all those weird like 50 ounce cartons where it's just, yeah, it's not enough for as many bowls of cereal as I need it to be. So I'm glad <laughs> that <laughs> the demand has brought down that price and also increased our size to our full half gallons that we need. Yes, absolutely. I 100% agree. So I'll be honest here. Selfishly, I'm a little happy that gas prices are so high right now because it doesn't impact me at all. Like I'm not paying for gas in my apartment and I don't use my car. So I don't have to worry about gas prices. From a global environmental point of view though, I'm also happy because it makes it a great time for these global climate talks to happen. Fossil fuel prices are at a high point and have been increasing since January, 2016 overall. Renewable energy prices on the other hand have been decreasing consistently for 10 years. Wow. So like what better time than now for COP26 to be like, hey, we need to address this. Renewable energy is one of the key things we have to go towards. No one's going to sit there and be like, oh, well, it's too expensive. Like it, it is, it's not, it's simply not anymore. So great timing. Yeah, seriously. I mean, what, what did you say? I can't remember. You said 56%. Oh no, you said- um, Dude, solar's down 85% over the last decade. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Matt, you think it's time to take a break? What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. And uh, when we get back, we're going to air my interview with Eddie Badrina. Nick, I don't know if this is something you can tell me, but do you know what color you might be wearing at the wedding this weekend? Is it is it you know, all black with a black bow tie. Matt, it actually is like a dark blue. It's like a royal blue, royal to navy blue. And I got a red tie. That's awesome. Do you have any sort of, you know, accessory you want to throw in that front pocket that might match? <sighs> Matt, you know exactly what it is. Tell us what it is, brother. It is Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Go check them out, guys. Valaalta.com. Look as good as Nick will at the wedding this weekend. <laughs> Thank you. 
to the planet today, folks. And now we're going to air Matt's interview with Eddie Badrina. Today on the planet today, we are joined by Eddie Badrina. Eddie is the CEO of Eden Green Technology, which is a vertical farming technology that helps people around the world sustainably grow large amounts of food using less land, less water, and less energy. Eddie's also a board member at Seed Effect, a micro-lending nonprofit focused on fostering economic stability. So Eddie Badrino, welcome to the planet today. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here, Matt. Yeah, we are, uh, we're excited to have you. This is going to be fun. So I guess we'll just kick it off with a statistic that I was reading about um, The World Counts, which for our listeners who haven't heard of it, is a website that compiles sustainability reporting to basically bring awareness to global challenges. And they estimate that 1.3 billion tons or one third of the world's food becomes food waste each year. Mm-hmm. So what first got you interested and involved in trying to improve our food system as a whole? So that's a great question. You know, um, I think that for me as an entrepreneur, uh, so I started a company back in 2010, digital ad agency, one of the first ones around in the space, sold it in 2016. Uh, bought it back 11 months later and then uh, and then continued to run it. But after I had a chance to buy it back and really uh, start to put it on a great growth pattern, I took it a step back and figured out, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, right? What did I want to do with my second half of my career? Mm-hmm. And three things really popped out to me. One was I wanted to run a hardware software company. Uh, the second one was I wanted to have an exponential impact on culture and society around me. So for one unit of effort that I put in, I wanted to see a 10 to 20 X return on uh, culture and society. And the third is I wanted to run what's called a redemptive organization. So there's actually a, uh, a group out of New York city called Praxis Labs, and they espouse something called a redemptive organization. That's pretty much focused on redeeming and restoring uh, society and community around us. So uh, Eating Green came along uh, and the lead investors uh, were looking for someone to give it vision uh, and, and get it to market, uh, get just and then grow it and, and uh, to, to the next level. And I think for me, it really piqued my interest. One, because it checked all three of those boxes. Uh, it's, a, it's a patented uh, design and usage of, uh, of vertical growing towers but in done in such a way that we can do it uh, at a commercial scale and really affect change uh, in a whole community. Uh, you know, one of the modules produces right under 2 million pounds of leafy greens in an acre and a half. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and we do it with sunlight, you know, complementary grow lights, but we do it mostly with sunlight. Uh, and so, uh, you put one of those acre and a half modules in an urban or around an urban area and do it in such a way that it's, it's economically viable and profitable. Uh, not only are you, you know, changing people's uh, lifestyle, the way uh, that where they go to work, uh, what they're working in, the environment they're working in, but also you have this unbelievable environmental effect of cutting down on the food supply chain where a lot of the waste that you mentioned just happens. Mm-hmm. You're cutting down on that supply chain and you're really providing locally grown greens to hundreds of thousands of people around you. So for me, that, I mean, not in just in addition to checking those three boxes, it also just uh, specifically uh, grabbed uh, my heart in terms of uh, 
having such a huge environmental and then cultural change in the way that we're eating food, the way that we're consuming nutritious food instead of empty calories Mm -hmm. and doing it in a way that's environmentally uh, responsible as well as economically uh, profitable. I think, I mean, those are, it was just a, uh, it was a dream come true for me to, to come upon this company and then have a chance to lead it. Cool. So it sounds kind of like a situation where you're not only impacting the community as a whole, but also the individual members of the community are all benefiting, whether it's through the food they're consuming or economically stimulating that community. You're having kind of that huge impact on every component of it. Absolutely. Because when you think about, you know, you think you look at, and I know probably a lot of your audience has seen indoor farming, they've seen um, hydroponics, but I think, you know, one of the dirty secrets of, uh, of our industry right now is that a lot of it is not profitable. Well, if it's not profitable, it's not going to be profitable for a long time. Where does employment go? Where does sustainability, mm-hmm. economic sustainability go? I mean, in business, if it's not profitable, it's not a business, it's a hobby, right? Mm -hmm. And so to be able to provide the local community with jobs uh, in an industry that's only going to grow by leaps and bounds uh, in the next decade, uh, to me, was just as important uh, as the environmental piece uh, because, I mean, that's their livelihoods, right? And if you're changing Mm -hmm. a whole generation of workers, uh, to be able to work in this new industry of of urban agriculture, I think that's a very special thing uh, for the long term sustainability uh, of our you know of our planet, right? To have farmers not needing to work thousands of miles away, not having to be transplanted to cities, and we see it in a lot of the developing countries where people who are working in who grew up in urban envi- or rural environments are then being attracted to the cities, and they're thus decimating the the rural ag industry is. And mm-hmm. so there's just gotta be a different way to feed people nutritiously, consistently, affordably, and not have it be from 2000 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all really, really good points too. So let's kind of take a step back just for people who might not be totally familiar with vertical farming as a practice. So yeah. let's start with the basics. How do your vertical farming greenhouses with Eden Green work. So just in comparison, I'll, I'll just do a comparison of, of square footage, right? So um, one and a half acres of our greenhouses is equal to about 10 acres of um, your normal glass greenhouses, the flat tray hydroponics, mm-hmm. which is then in turn equal to about 40 acres of open farm land. I mean, wow. it's that much of an exponential difference. Yeah, that's substantial. So, so 40 acres of land will consume close to 700,000 gallons of water a year. Wow. I mean, not consume, just waste it. Yeah. Waste 700,000 gallons of water a year. Our waste uh, out of a whole year to produce 900 tons of leafy greens uh, is around 90,000 gallons of water a year, which is about two households of the United States. Wow. That's it. So <laughs> that's a I mean, wild it's, difference. It's insane <laughs> numbers, right? Like it's kind of like talking about our, our national budget. Like you can't even grasp the numbers really just, you know, it suffice it to say there's, 
huge, huge benefits to growing hydroponically and growing in greenhouses uh, from an environmental perspective, 99% less water, 98% less land, right? Um, how you do it is if you ever, if you can go to eatinggreen.com, you'll see these plants in these cups, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. And in these cups, there's a grow medium. Uh, there's one called rock wool and it's actually lava rock heated to over a thousand degrees and then spun into like a wool type consistency. And that's where you put your seeds in and they grow. Uh, the plants grow in that inert uh, medium, grow medium, and you, mm-hmm. and you flood it so to speak, with water filled with nutrients, and then you blast it with carbon dioxide and have this ambient air, air temperature uh, that's conducive to uh, conducive to plant growth, right? The other one is, uh, it's called J- a Jiffy Plug. It's, that's just the name of the company, but it's a Jiffy Plug and it's, uh, it's peat moss and um, cocoa husk. Oh, cool. Uh, and uh, that is an organic material. Uh, same thing. You seed it, you put the seed in there, it germinates. We call it propagation. And then we do it from there. We pl- transplant it into our system. So there's no soil. You're, the nutrients all come through the water. Now, a lot of people say, okay, there's no soil. Like what, what are you missing? And what you're, you're not missing anything because the nutrients are coming through the water. Um, and the thing that you, but the thing that actually you are missing are all the other environmental factors that come with open land farming, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, pesticides. We don't use any sort of synthetic pesticides in our greenhouses because they're all uh, positive pressure greenhouses. And so bugs are at a minimum, if not totally absent. Right. Uh, the the uh, the air environment, you've got uh, contaminants just in the air. You've got contaminants of runoff. We've seen uh, we've seen um, recalls, uh, salmonella and, and E. coli recalls from organic farms, not because they did anything wrong, but because the farms around them were producing toxic runoff from mm-hmm. cattle. Right. And from other uh, other. Uh, contaminants. And so there's just a lot of things that you cannot control uh, that are going into the plant in uh, in an, an open far, open land farming situation, not to mention weather patterns, seasonal patterns, um, you know, that just contribute to inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the reasons and the, um, the, 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 uh, benefits of growing hydroponically as well as indoors in greenhouses. Got it. Um, now, can you grow all of the same crops that, you know, a, a farmer out in a large field would be able to grow or are there any limitations to this? Yeah. So that's a good question. We actually, we know we're not a silver bullet and this industry is not a silver bullet to, uh, to the farming industry and to the ag industry. Farmers, like, I don't know if, you know, if you've met any, but they are some of the hardest working people in our country today, hands For down. Sure. Right? For sure. Um, and so we're not there to uh, replace every farmer. What we are, what we can do, and we can grow better than most are things like lettuce, spinach, arugula, kale, herbs, um, you know, uh, we've got peers that are growing really good tomatoes. Uh, we've got folks growing strawberries, you know, we're researching strawberries ourselves. There's a ton of things that we can grow. We can't necessarily grow rice and millet and wheat and corn, right. Mm -hmm. 
uh, soybeans. Um, so there are things that we can't grow, but the ones that we can grow, we can do it really, really well and really efficiently and uh, environmentally safe. And those are those leafy greens, those herbs, and then more increasingly berries. Gotcha. Um, now we've mentioned this on the show and actually I was listening to um, the Ezra Klein show from the New York times last week and they brought up the phrase hydroponics, which you've been speaking about here for people who might not be as familiar with the term, what is hydroponics and how is that something your team incorporates into what you do? Yeah. So hydroponics is the basis of our, uh, of our technology. And really just, you know, if you divide the, the word into hydro water and ponics, how you grow, right? So hydroponics is where you're using water to transport the nutrients into the water roots of the uh, of the plant and it's usually flowing over it. There's some hydroponics that are called uh, deep water hydroponics and the, and the, the roots actually sit in a, in a, in a pond, if you will. Right. Okay. They sit in the water. Uh, there's some, uh, there's some uh, hard uh, truths about that type of growing, that type of hydroponic growing one, which is the water stagnant. And two, uh, there's less aeration because it's not flowing regularly. Uh, and then there's just more, um, more uh, opportunity for bacteria and algae to grow. Whereas if it's constantly flowing, much like a river or a stream, you're not going to get uh, stagnation. Uh, you're, you're not going to get uh, the aeration will mitigate bacterial growth. And then the other thing too, is a lot of people don't realize when you do that, when you do hydroponics and the roots just sit there, what happens is it calcifies. And if you look at the growth rate of a plant, the last 20% of the growth rate of the plant, plant's life is where it grows the most, at least for our system but uh, and for hydroponics. But ironically, uh, that last 20% of the plant life is where it calcifies the most. So you have huh. to, right? So the plants yeah. don't grow as much because their roots are all covered in calcium. That's so interesting. So we <laughs> solve that by having water continuously run over the roots. And so if you look at a root system uh, in one in our system, like it is long. It is probably as long as the plant itself. Uh, but it just it's this beautiful long root system that's uh, totally healthy and is just sucking up nutrients through the water uh, as as quickly as it can. So that's hydroponics in a nutshell. Cool. So food deserts are defined as an urban area in which it's difficult to buy affordable or good quality fresh food. Um, I'm sure this is something you get asked often, but how can Eden Green technology help address this issue in lower income urban communities, which are more likely to experience food deserts? Yeah. So, um, you know, what what is ironic about the underserved communities uh, in the urban areas that are food deserts is they're usually the most strategically located uh, in terms of distribution, right? Mm -hmm. They're in urban areas, they're close to highways, uh, they've got the needed infrastructure, but they just tend to be located right next to industrial zones, right? Mm -hmm. um, or or for whatever, there's a variety of reasons that they, they get that way over a period of time. Well, the land's the cheapest in an underserved community like that. So if I'm an investor and I'm looking to put an acre and a half greenhouse in, in an urban area, I need cheap land because an acre and a half is an acre and a half, right? That's expensive. Yeah. Um, where ought to I put that? Well, 
it makes sense. I'll put it where the cheapest land's available that's not near an industrial zone, and that's in the underserved areas. So, you know, it's not next to a, you know, some sort of manufacturing facility, but the reality is that's where they, the greenhouses are optimally placed is in these, uh, they're usually opportunity zones or they're economic development zones, but they're in places where, uh, where the people are most underserved. Well, guess what? When you put them in that area, who are you going to employ? Your neighbors. Yeah. Right. And they need the jobs the most. So that's something that we're really proud of is because we don't have to rely a lot of on, on automation because the rest of our system is so efficient. We don't have all the bells and whistles of robotics. We actually want to hire people. So one module, an acre and a half can employ up to 30 full-time people and have great bottom line uh, results. Uh, top line is around uh, operating profits around 40, 40%. And wow. then uh, EBITDA is around 20 to 25%, depending on what you grow. That's with the 30 people employed. So, that's really cool. So <laughs> that's, yeah, right. That's the benefit. It's not just an environmental be- benefit. It's also an employment benefit. We want to employ those people and they can come in the base jobs that we have as production assistants. They can learn the job in about four hours. Okay. And it's not just a dead end job though. So the vision of eating green is to actually have a mesh network, if you will, of greenhouses all around the nation in metropolitan areas. So uh, with this mesh network, we're basically redefining what locally grown means. You'll have a nationally local food source. And when you have this mesh network of greenhouses all over the place, you've got one person working, you know, call it in, you know, uh, in Brooklyn. Okay. And they, you know, they start out as a production assistant and then they grow up and they can go into a couple of different areas, but say they top out in their greenhouse there. Well, guess what? There were 60 other greenhouses in and around their area, but also just around the United States that allow them to take that next step, not just in terms of profession, but in terms of upward mobility. And it's something that you and I enjoy. We don't think about going to university in another in another state. We don't think about moving here and there for the next job because we have that luxury of, you know, of being uh, in the information economy. Mm-hmm. But for the folks who are not there yet, or maybe that's just not their lot in life and they're working with their hands and they're doing a, you know, a solid day's wage, I still want them to have upward mobility that comes through not being stuck in one place and just knowing that they can't, they'll top out in their normal assembly plant, right. Or manufacturing plant. They actually have the ability to jump uh, and move uh, and, and further their career. And when, by the way, if they can work in our greenhouse, which is the top end of innovation and technology, they can work in almost any other greenhouse or indoor farming company. So that's a, I mean, we, we are an employment platform uh, waiting to happen uh, in the urban areas. That's really cool because, you know, I, I know we hinted at this at the start of the interview, but you are having a really big impact on the people and the economy and their food system as well. So you're really just, like you said, checking off all of these different boxes that 
we do care about and we should care about because they're really, really important things for each individual community and each individual within that community. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, the the bells and whistles and the shiny object syndrome of robotics and automation is really cool until you think, well, wait a second, what happens to the worker? Yeah. And yeah, robotics are cool until it comes for your job. <laughs> like, right. They're cool to uh, look at. They're, they're but, cool to look at. I'm yeah. sure they're efficient and they are efficient. But, you know, I've pushed back with a number of investors and like, hey, robotics are fine, but I really like name another company that uh, that wants to hire this many people in urban areas. They don't have to move out to a rural area or they don't, right? They, yeah. Name another company that really wants to employ their neighbors. That's that's where I think it's a it's a it's a special thing in our industry that we're able to do. Yeah, I'm I'm also really interested in how you brought up changing the idea of shopping locally because you know for me I'm very lucky that I live ten blocks from a farmers market so every Sunday I'm able to go and get local produce and vegetables and all places from within, I think, I think the furthest farm that they bring in food from is about 40 miles away. Um, but yeah, it's kind of easy for me to get produce that doesn't have as much of a transportation footprint. Not everyone is that lucky. So I think it's a really noble and it seems also economically smart decision to bring local farming to different communities. Yeah. You know, we, we have a lot of folks who are saying, Hey, focus on the top end of things, focus on the whole foods of the world, focus on, on that. And, and my response is great, but what about the other 99% that, I mean, they, they ought to have access, affordable access, consistent access to leafy greens and nutritious yeah. food. Why not them? And that's a much bigger market than the 1% than the 1% of whole foods folks. Yeah. So, you know, but the only way you can do it is if you're economically efficient and economically profitable to begin with. Otherwise you're just gonna have to sell it at a premium. And so my team is working really hard on making it not so that we compete with organic, but so that we actually compete with conventional because then it becomes much more accessible to the everyday consumer. And if you can compete with conventional and address the locally grown demand, which in the pan during this pandemic, and I think going forward, we're seeing over the last two years, we've seen a 400% increase in the demand for locally grown foods over organic. Jeez. Over I organic. I did not realize that. Yeah. People it really want to know. Though. People yeah. really want to know where their food's coming from. Yeah. Um, but like you said, you and I had the luxury of going to farmers markets on the weekends. The vast majority of America is either not willing because it's they got to work on yeah. a Saturday or Sunday, or they got kids at home that they got to watch and they, don't, they just can't, or they're not able. They're, they yeah. don't have access to a farmer's market, right? For those who are neither willing nor able, they still deserve nutritious greens, right? And so yeah. that's what that's what we're trying to solve. So, how would you say your team and you know, this might be a bit of a broad question, but how is your team and, and agricultural technology as a whole transforming farming as we know it today? Like, I'm sure there's a lot of my listeners out there who are thinking, this all sounds so cool, but where are we in this process? Like, is this yeah. early stages or is this an ongoing thing that, you know, people are going to see these vertical farming technologies popping up all over soon? 
Yeah, I think because of climate change and because of the exposure of our food supply chain as being pretty fragile, Mm -hmm. you're seeing a huge growth spurt in our industry. Um, I think for us personally, uh, we are, uh, we've got a, 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 greenhouse in Cleburne. Uh, it was an R&D greenhouse as our first one, but the demand has been so great for our, our produce that we've actually switched it to a production facility. Wow. Um, we're building another one where it's actually, you know, the ground is broken and we've, we're laying down, uh, laying down the concrete pads. So we're building one that's uh, 50% larger uh, next to our R&D facility. And that's a full-on production facility, uh, totally profitable. And almost all the greens are pre-sold at this point, even before we've grown our first harvest. Uh, It'll be done in April of 2022. And we're actually going out for a raise. Um, We're we're raising money uh, to start to build out this mesh network of greenhouses. And we're targeting uh, the Northeast. We're targeting, uh, you know, uh, the Southeast as well, as uh, as well as as Texas, because it's such a huge growth state. Uh, So, uh, and then there's, there's a couple of of places in the Midwest we're looking at. So uh, it's growing very rapidly. Uh, You can expect to see uh, if everything goes according to plan, I mean, you're you're gonna you, you will see probably upwards of ten greenhouses by the end of t- 2023 uh, from us. That's, and that's really exciting, us, <laughs> right? That's just us. Yeah. Um, uh, that that does not include uh, you know a lot of our peers who are you know uh, creating huge acreages of of flat tray greenhouses down in Kentucky or even there there in New York City as well. You know, you've got some really folks that we respect like uh, like Bowery and Gotham Greens who are doing a great job as well. So there's a, the industry's growing because overall both investors and consumers uh, and then and then leaders, uh, government leaders are seeing a need uh, to sort of offset, not eliminate, but offset some of the uh, some of the land uh, use and waste uh, that's coming through conventional farming right now. That's really cool. It seems like a really interesting time for really every environmental technology. And it's cool to see that ag tech is just another one of those trends where you might not realize it if you don't pay attention, but it's a really cool time to be a part of this. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 the thing that a lot of folks ask us is, Hey, what are you doing about solar? What are you doing about water reclamation? What are you doing about right? CO2 carbon offsets Mm -hmm. and all of those things. If you, if you consider our greenhouses, our modules as, um, as platforms, as hardware platforms, we've created the ability to plug into those just like you know, any other hardware platform, like an API, right? We've created the ability to plug into those things, um, water reclamation systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're plugging into those things, solar power systems, so that if you are in a sort of call it, we call it a peri-urban area, just outside the urban limits. uh, And if you've got an acre and a half uh, or, or three acres of greenhouse, you can add another acre and put a solar farm there, right? Or you can- uh, there's a number of things you can do to have alternative power there. And then lastly, you know, one of the things that we're working on is really dialing in and quantifying the carbon offsets that we have because we do we actually pump carbon dioxide into our greenhouses because otherwise, I mean, our plants, it's so dense. Our plants would suck up all that carbon dioxide yeah. really quickly, like three hours into the day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we're trying to quantify that because then we can start to sell carbon credits 
out of these yeah. greenhouses, right? Uh, and it's another revenue stream for greenhouses to be ever more profitable, but it's also dovetailing uh, with some of the environmental standards and demands that we're seeing in other areas, in other industries. Got it. So I have one more question for you and then three quick fun questions for you. So let's get the business one out of the way. Um, <laughs> if somebody was to ask you, you know, quick elevator pitch, how can 1.5 acres change an entire community? What's your answer as to, you know, quick, here's what you can tell your friends if, if they ask you this question later. 900 tons of leafy greens employing 30 people and uh, providing uh, upwards of 3 million servings of uh, nutritious greens to the community around it. That's what can be done in an acre and a half. That's so crazy because it's not a lot of land we're talking about there and you're making a huge difference. (laughs) It's not. It's crazy amounts of density and it's all due to my team. I mean, my engineering and horticulture team, those are the those are the geniuses. I'm, I'm just the, I'm just the radio voice. <laughs> hey, that job's important too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's the fun ones. So we close every interview that we do with three fun rapid fire questions. First one, Eddie, what's your favorite animal? Oh, my favorite animal. Um, gosh, that's hard. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it, whale. it never, it never turns into rapid fire. It's always, we Killer always whale. talk about it. Nice. Uh, my co-host and producer, Nick, that's his favorite animal too. So, uh, it's a bummer that he missed this one. <laughs> oh, I could, I could go down a rabbit hole of YouTube videos of just watching orcas. They're so beautiful thing. too. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Number two, what is something you do to try to be more sustainable in your own life? Uh, so we compost, uh, we have this huge compost. I've got a family of five. And so, uh, my kids know to, you know, put the, put the, uh, food, uh, waste and the, you know, the plant waste and, uh, in, in a separate container and we, we compost, we grow our own herbs. Uh, I don't know how well we grow it compared to my (laughs) greenhouse. Uh, but yeah, that's, those are the main ways that, uh, I just try to be more environmentally conscious and, and have put less waste into landfills. Awesome. And last one, what is one environmental topic that you think our listeners should be more aware of after hearing this interview? I think everyone should be aware of water shortages, uh, especially for your listeners on the East Coast. It may not mm-hmm. affect you as much, uh, but the Colorado River had its first ever uh, water, uh, like tier one water shortage um, yeah. alert. And it's, man, it's coming and it's coming really, really quickly. Uh, so uh, I, I think that's some, I, I don't, you know, people like, well, take shorter showers or, you know, yes and no. I mean, there's some real, real issues with a growing population and a lot of folks moving in that direction towards the West and Southwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's becoming more and more an issue. So I think that's something if you're, if you're thinking about, Hey, how, how can I make an impact? But then also from an investment standpoint, uh, what is a, what is an industry that's only going to be more and more important as, as the days go by, it's going to be everything related to water. Water is the new oil in my book. It's funny you mentioned that because I was just about to say, I was reading a quote recently and it said that wars of the past were fought over oil. Wars of the future will be fought over water. Yeah. Could, so. could not agree more. 
Yeah. All right, Eddie, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun and I definitely learned a lot. And I'm sure I speak for all of our listeners out there when I say that we now know a lot more about vertical farming, hydroponics, and ag tech in general because of this interview. So thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. If our listeners want to keep up with you or Eden Green Technology, where's the best place for them to do that? So Eden Green Tech is all our socials, uh, all the socials, and then EdenGreen.com, E-D-E-N-G-R-E-E-N.com. Awesome. And we will uh, tag you in our Instagram post. That way you guys can all just go ahead and click that. Don't even worry about getting those fingers tired from typing. So (laughs) we got you. (laughs) Awesome. All right, Eddie. Thank you again. Hey, thanks, Matt. All right. And that's it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio for another fun-filled episode featuring recurring guest co-host Dan Walsh. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at PlanetTodayPod or email us at PlanetTodayPod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you could share the show with a friend, so share it on your social media when we post something cool, retweet us, engage with us, do what you got to do, or just, you know, organically, word of mouth, just say, hey, I was listening to this cool show, check it out. We love getting new listeners. We love engaging with new people on social media. So help us get some eyes on the show. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, you can send them in just like Caitlin Parisi did this week. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too. If you have a guest you want us to have on, let us know and we will do our best to make it happen. If you like the show or if you didn't, please give it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on a different service, the reviews help us the most on Apple. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape. And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace! Peace!